On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Most footwear brands use cheaper synthetic materials, but when it comes to quality, Mother Nature knows best. Allbirds took that idea and ran with their iconic wool runners. Wool runners are made with premium supernatural materials that are comfy and durable, so you can run to the ends of the earth or just to the store. Plus, they're machine washable. This year, take a big step forward for Mother Nature with Allbirds Wool Runner. Discover your perfect pair today at allbirds.com. That's A L L B I R D S.com. Greetings out there, rock and roll fans, and welcome to the 43rd edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded here just off Abbey Road in central London. I am your host, Mac B, the Wolf, and I gotta tell you, I'm really excited about this week's show. I will be joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Gary Action Not Words Jackson, and if you understand that reference, you probably have an idea of what we're going to be talking about today, but generally... If you know the show, you know that we're just two old college friends who love rock music, love classic rock, hard rock, heavy metal, old MTV, progressive rock, all the stuff that we're into. And we love all the little details, the minutia, the did you know facts about everything. And that's why today we're super excited to have a special guest on our show. And that's Neil from Def Lep Pod. Neil's been running the Def Leppard podcast for a little over a year and a half, I feel like. Has a very nice following, and he has incredible knowledge about the band Def Leppard. Just intimate, tiny little details about the history of the band, the recordings, the songs themselves, and that's the kind of stuff that we love to get into here on The Wolf. So he's going to tell us a little bit about how he became a Def Leppard fan, and then he's going to provide us a little bit of perspective, like the difference between being a Def Leppard fan in the UK versus the US. Because in the US, they're kind of held high in the pantheon of hard rock and roll bands, but in the UK, I feel like they're underrated or underappreciated, kind of like the reverse of Oasis in the UK versus the US. So we're going to dive deep into that, and you can check out his pod, Def Lep Pod, a Def Leppard podcast, and you can follow him on Twitter at Def Lep Pod. Of course, we want you to follow us and download us on Spotify or Apple or Google or Amazon or wherever you get your podcasts. You can see all past episodes at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. And I want you to check us out on Twitter. I'm at Ugly underscore Werewolf and Jackson's at ActionJack72. We've been having a lot of fun on Twitter lately. And I got to see Steve Hackett here recently, and we've got some great Twitter shots of that show and some great likes and retweets going on there, so I hope you can check it out. But this week, we take a deep dive into Hysteria, the 1987 Def Leppard classic that yielded seven singles in America and six top 20 mainstream Billboard 100 hits. When's the last time a rock band had six top 20 hits off one record? I think this is it, folks. I think this is the one. Maybe Metallica's Black Album, but I don't know if it's been done since then. And of course, it almost didn't happen thanks to the fact that their drummer, Rick Allen, was in a terrible accident and lost his left arm, which obviously put a damper on recordings and very much put his career in jeopardy. Of course, the story is a story of legend in that they came back, they stuck by him, he learned to play with both feet more and to use some technology to help make sure he can stay in the band, and the band put out 
an enormous record with huge hits like Hysteria, Animal, Love Bites, and of course the American big time favorite, the, the American, you, you heard it coming out of IROC Z's all over America the summer of 1988 and 1989 for that matter, Pour Some Sugar On Me. So if you're a child of the 80s, I think you're going to like this one. Neil is great. We had a lot of fun talking with him. He was like having pints with an old friend at the pub. So sit back, relax. We've got the Ugly American Werewolf and Def Leppard doing hysteria here on The Wolf. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
All right, so I can put on my DJ button. Hey, welcome to the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. And we're joined here today by Neil from Def Lep Pod up in the Midland North Country. Hey, Neil, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Mac. <laughs> I love that introduction. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's great to have you on. It's great to have someone with so much knowledge of Def Leppard. I mean, I love the song Let It, Let it Go, but didn't know until I listened to your show that it was 132 beats per minute. It's like, now that's the kind of knowledge that I need to have. And the way you break down the tracks is brilliant. So I don't know if we're going to be able to stand up to that because we usually do a, an hour-long show on like a record and you could do more than an hour on one song. But what we really want to hear is kind of how you got into Def Leppard and kind of give us the English perspective as a Def Leppard fan because I got a feeling it's just a little different than ours being Americans. Yeah, of course. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, well, the first thing, the Let It Go and it being 128 uh, beats per minute, that's not the type of knowledge that I have rattling around in my head. I might have actually uh, looked that up. <laughs> that might not truly be reflective of what's uh, rattling around in my brain. Yeah, so in terms of my own experience of Def Leppard and being a Def Leppard fan and when I got into them, it's quite a, it's been quite a solo pursuit, uh, to be honest. I got into Def Leppard when I was 10 years old in 1988, mm-hmm. simply because my brother, who's three years older, was into Iron Maiden, and he was into a band, and he had all the posters up on the wall. And obviously, you look up to your big brother in, in musical taste. And I was very much, oh, I'll get into Iron Maiden as well. Never heard them, but, you know, cool posters. Absolutely. And everything. And he was like, well, that's good, but why don't you get your own band as well? And then I always remember he said to me, there's a band out called Def Leppard. I think they're pretty good. Why don't you get into them? So it was a really manufactured, conscious decision to get into a band that I'd never heard of. So I went to the shop and I bought the single that was out at the time, which was the Love Bite single of ah. Hysteria, which obviously we're going to be talking about today. Mm-hmm. So no, you know, this isn't like a big rock song. This isn't like a cool story of, you know, someone being 14 and rebelling and getting into punk and, you know, being at the first Sex Pistols gig. Right. This is a, a 10-year-old boy going to a shop called Woolworths and buying a... Uh, a ballad and a very romantic song buying that never even heard, never even hearing the band but luckily for me it had love bites on it had the song excitable or an extended version of it and the orgasmic mix it's called right uh, which is off this area and it also had billy's got a gun live on it so on that one 12 inch record there's three very very different songs so i was able straight away to get a taste of the variety Def Leppard might not be a band that you think there's a lot of variety in. I, as someone with the Def Leppard podcast, will probably argue that there is. But there was that variety straight away. And I got lucky that I did actually like this music and then it all started from them. But I mean, I'm 43 now. Yeah, the whole time, like for the last 30 years or so, I've very much, none of my friends have been into Def Leppard. We've, we've got the same musical taste in terms of rock and metal. Mm-hmm. But I was on my, um, on my own in that one. And it's only really in the last year or so since I've started this, uh, my own Def Leppard podcast, that I've been introduced to a community of Def Leppard fans, most of which are in the States. But there are, I've, I've found other versions of me in the UK as well, which has been, it's been great. So, yeah, that's, that's been my experience of Def Leppard so far. Uh, well, that's great. And uh, for the most part, Jax and I, sometimes we have a little different views because I kind of grew up in the Midwest the big bit in the middle, sometimes the, the Brits will refer to it as, whereas Jackson grew up in, in greater greater New York City, the tri-state area, maybe, if you will. And, and so sometimes we have different experiences. But for the most part, we both came to Def Leppard the same way because we're about five years older than you. So we were 10 in 1983 when Photograph 
was huge all over MTV. And we, we did that on show nine, Jackson. But, I mean, you want to tell them a little bit about our, how we found Def Leppard as younger kids? Well, I mean, the, the way I found it was MTV. I mean, MTV was, in my parents' estimation, pretty close to looking into the devil's window. So I said, well, that's something I've got to check out. And, yeah, they were all over MTV. They had a Photograph was huge, Rock of Ages, Foolin'. They were all great rock tracks really cool videos and i brought this up before and i hate to admit it but the coolest rock bands come from the uk so that would they added another layer of being cool because they were they were british and they had the you know joe elliott had the cool union jack uh t-shirt on which i thought was awesome mm-hmm. and they were just a really great straight ahead rock band at that point in time but yet also were on top 40 radio and mtv and i just automatically just it was attracted to that because it was right down it was really what was i was interested in guitar driven hard rock yeah everyone had a copy of pyromania and everybody had a copy of 1984 by van halen when we were like 10 11 12 years old like that that was it it's, it's really interesting especially the the photograph uh, reference because pyromania did, did nothing in the uk and i, I, I know people uh, may know about this but essentially Def Leppard don't break in the UK until the summer of 1987, pretty much to the month, 10 years after they've formed. So they've had, um, they've had a little purple period right at the beginning when uh, the, the caught up in the hype of the new wave of British heavy metal. And they have quite a successful first uh, tour, like theatre tour of the UK in 1980, which goes pretty well. But Hind Drive does nothing. Pyromania does nothing. And that's the strangest one, because obviously Pyromania is huge in America. Yeah. And interestingly... With Photograph, which is obviously gets out of there because it becomes popular because of MTV, the radio is very different in America. Mm. We're in the UK. You really need to break the top 40. So it's not a Billboard 100. It's you know it's a top 40. And essentially, if you miss out on that top 40, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Mm. But if you don't get into the top 40, you won't be played on the radio. And if you don't get played on the radio, no one will hear it. And therefore, you won't climb the charts. Photograph in the UK got to number forty-one. So, it's, oh, so oh, oh. you guys don't have like other formats. Like you don't have like cloud, or you didn't back then have like classic rock. And okay, okay. So it was top forty only. It's difficult to explain to people outside of the UK how backwards <laughs> the UK was and to an extent is. So in terms of rock music in like the nineteen eighties and even the nineties is. There was one rock show on Radio 1, so BBC Radio 1, mm-hmm. on a Friday night. There was a DJ called Tommy Vance, and there was a two-hour rock show from 10 o'clock till 12 o'clock. So on the radio, that was the only rock show, two hours wow. once a week. So we haven't got all of these other channels and everything that you've got, so other stations that you've got in the States. The only other thing that there was as well, was there was Top of the Pops, which was on every Thursday night, half an hour for seven o'clock. That might sometimes have like one rock band on it. Right. So Animal, which is the first single off Hysteria, that's that's the first one. But other than that, there was also at like two o'clock in the morning on a Friday night, early hours of Saturday morning, there was a rock show on the television called The Power Hour, which then changed its name to Raw Power. Um, you had to set your video, you know, your old VHS, and, um, of and then there was an hour rock show. Yeah, as I said, in the early hours of Saturday morning. And then the only other thing, there was another program on a Saturday morning called The Chart Show. And that would have every third week in it, it would have like a little two minute segment where there'd be a rock chart, an indie chart, and a dance chart. 
and that would alternate like on a three-week rotor. So you might quickly catch something in that, and that was it. That was like lit. That was literally it. Yeah, the world was a much different place before the internet and everything that goes along with that. Because even even where we were, we had different stations, but it was still you just had to go along with what they played. I mean, you couldn't. It wasn't on demand like it is now, unless you had the music. But you had to pay for that back then, and that was a big expenditure when you were a kid. You didn't have a ton of cash hanging around. So yeah, it, it, funny to think about how you were at the mercy of somebody else. Just well, I hope something cool comes in next, or but you really didn't want to do was turn the radio on and have the song be like 99% over oh I just missed it <laughs> but I remember like being in high school and like driving around the block again because I want to hear the whole song and I'm not done yet yeah and as much as I as much as I love the internet because it gives you information at your fingertips you don't I think that people don't have that connection anymore with different bands because you can listen to everything I think as well you take a punt you take a chance on things because you, you know you have to so the way I explained in terms of just going out and buying a single, never having hair in it, because you sort of have to do that thing. I do think if, if a 10-year-old me was out now and the same thing happened, what easily could have happened was, well, you know what, I'll go and listen to it on Spotify. Don't get me wrong, I've used streaming services and I like them and I buy my vinyl as well, and I hmm. use both, like horses for courses. But I do think of even the way my own way in which I listen to music has changed now. And I do wonder if now I'd put Spotify on, Maybe listen to the first fifteen seconds of Love Bites. Just hear that that weird like computer mm-hmm. at the start and think, no, I won't bother with that. And then next, it. and then I never invest in it any further. Listening to the Rock on Tours with Gary Camp and Guy Pratt, they had Joe Elliott on, you know, a few weeks back or whatever, yeah. and it was a good show. Joe's got this amazing knowledge of, of British bands. But basically kind of saying how they were the anti-Oasis. Like, Oasis couldn't be bigger. They're the biggest band of the last 30 years here. But in America, they're kind of just another band from that 90s era. Whereas for Def Leppard, it's the opposite. Def Leppard's like, okay, yeah, we, they're from a UK and they've got UK fans. But in America, Def Leppard's one of the biggest rock bands of all time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, it, it's interesting. I, I heard that Joe Elliott's interview as well. Obviously... I listen to a lot of Def Leppard interviews because, and I just have over the years, and that's where you get a lot of your knowledge. But you don't have to go through this, but trust me, if you listen to Joe Elliott's interviews as much as I mm-hmm. um, they're so repetitive. <laughs> it's like I must have heard Def Leppard say the same thing, like tell the same stories like a hundred times. It's like, but there are other people who there's always something new to learn. Um, Def Leppard are quite, they're like, they're like Premier League footballers. It's almost like they just. They repeat the same mantra quite a lot, right. which isn't good when you're trying to make a podcast. It's got to be tough, though, after a while, because you, the people want to ask you the same questions. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, what am I going to do? Make up a whole new story about this? And and I guess to those guys' credit, it's interesting. And, and I like the fact that they'll still go on and do interviews. Like, I know guys like Bob Dylan, they won't talk to anybody anymore because it's like there's nothing – you can't ask me anything new. And then there was, I think there was an interview I saw with Gene Simmons where the guy asked him, so where did the, where did the name Kiss come from? He's like, really? That's like a 40-year-old question. Like, you got to think of something new or I'm out of here. So, yeah, I can imagine that. And maybe after a while, like, his brain just kind of switches off to, like, he can tell the story and think about, like, so what's for lunch today? Hmm. But, but the fact that, that to the point before, 
about how, I mean, they're still big in the United States. They still sell out tours, and I would really love to go see them in Vegas because that looks really cool. Well, so maybe we can explore it a little bit. I mean, if you've watched, and I'm sure you've watched, Hysteria, the Def Leppard story, the kind of low-budget movie that was made about the Def Leps. We saw it on VH1 maybe 20 years ago or something like that. But I did re-watch it, you know, this week to kind of get back uh, into the mindset. And it seemed like because their big single Hello America on On Through the Night was Hello America... I feel like the British press was all over them for that. Like, why do you want it? Why are you pandering to the colonies? Why don't you, you know, why don't you just want to be stars in your home country? And I feel like that worked against them. It must have worked against them up through Pyromania because once you've got Mutt Lang making this incredible record and you've got great videos all over MTV, but you still can't crack the top 10. Photograph doesn't make the top 40. Huh? Is it just because the, the press was mean to them for wanting to be stars outside of the UK? I think initially, yes. So that, that comes about uh, essentially the, I mentioned that on Through the Night Tour, which is Def Leppard's first album, which does really well for, you know, for a theatre tour. Mm-hmm. They then go to America for, for only three months. They've played everywhere in the UK. Like they played everywhere, like north and south, smallest places. They played them twice, they've gone round. They've done it everywhere that they can in the UK. They then go to America, and bear in mind, at the same time, Iron Maiden have gone to America and played more shows in America. Right. But obviously, they've got a different image because they're not sort of like they fit into the, an idea of like British heavy metal a little bit more, and they belong a little bit more. While sort of Def Leppard is young kids, so you know they're quite brash, they're quite confident, they're quite arrogant. They talk openly about wanting to be one of the biggest bands in the world. And you might know Mac, like living in the UK. That type of thing sort of goes against the grain of like the, the British mentality. I think in Britain, we, until Oasis <laughs> like, came well, along, yeah, and then like, they were all in, apparently. But yeah, you're right yeah, overall. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, so they go away to America, and during that time, there's a journalist called Jeff Barton, who's the editor of Sounds Magazine, which is a big magazine mm-hmm. in Britain at the time. And again, these magazines have far more sway than you would have now and again because it's um, limited access. Sure. And essentially, they they run scathing column as such or review on Def Leppard. Like, has has the Leppard changed its spots? Is, is the headline on it? And therefore, they then, when they come back to the UK in the summer, and they play the Reading Festival, and they get bottled off stage, and, and what have you, and they go down really badly. And there's this whole idea of selling out. So that's what initially puts the stops on it. But and then I feel then what happens then is they just lose their momentum um, essentially. But I think there's a difference as well. And you, you could probably educate me on this um, a little bit more, and I might be wrong. But I think the difference between the UK and the US in terms of rock music is it seems to me from an outsider looking in that in the US rock music is like is culturally sort of the working man or woman's music it's there in the fabric it's like it's what the majority of people will like rock music to some extent or, or metal or, or yeah, hard rock mm-hmm. but I, while in the UK rock and metal is still still to this day more of a subculture and the music like the sort of the blue collar music is like in, in Britain will be whatever the terrible pop is of the day or the terrible dance music or the terrible club music of the day. So therefore, I think we're in the States, you know, this type of music like Photograph and what have you gets played 
on the radio and it's out there and accessible. I think unless you're part of this subculture who's into rock and metal, then you're not going to hear this that these Def Leppard songs. And then if the majority of those people who are part of that subculture have decided that Def Leppard have sold out and they've gone against him in some way, that you do effectively get there for six or seven years is almost, well, literally radio silence when it comes to um, Def Leppard in the UK, other than a hardcore of fans at that time who liked them. Okay, so in, in the United States, I would say that even though it had been that gap of time between Pyromania and then what would become Hysteria, that was they were still known in the United States. They were still played on the radio, not in top 40 anymore, but now on like, you know, rock radio or classic rock radio. So I don't think, I don't remember them really going away. I mean, it had been a while, but I think that they were still names known to people who were into that. And you're right. I think rock is like the, the blue collar deal. I mean, that's what you do. You, I mean, if you heard anybody who, I mean, I don't know what you consider blue collar, but like, you know, any guy, anybody that can listen to the radio and do their job during the day, they would play rock music. They're, you're not going to go to a machine shop and hear pop music coming through that. There's no way that's going to happen. While in Britain, you're probably going to have like Kylie Minogue or something. <laughs> I don't want to. Like I don't want you know, to. In the mid 80s. Yeah. I mean, as much as I love Kylie Minogue, I would want to watch the video with sound off. That's what I want to see. But it's it's interesting to hear you say that because, yeah, I mean, look, we love Iron Maiden too and we've done a several shows on Maiden. And, Same here. But Maiden never got on MTV in America. Never. And I think it's just that they're just not pretty enough for American TV. And if you look at Def Leppard, here's young guys. They're nice looking guys. They're blonde. Never underestimate the power of being a bleach blonde in America and how successful you can be. So, yeah, I mean, they did uh, an amazing job getting onto MTV and staying there. It seems like they had some good management picked them up with Q Prime, Cliff Bernstein, who eventually also did uh, Metallica, and Peter Mensch. They kind of hit it big in America, but yeah, the Iron Maidens, for whatever reason, although certainly popular, were more of a subgenre, whereas Def Leppard just couldn't have really been any bigger. And that's interesting, too, your point about the, the thinking in Britain is that we're not brash, we're not... We don't, you know, promote ourselves. That's Iron Maiden right there. Either you like their music or you don't. The people that like it love it. They're not interested in being being mainstream. They're not interested in being pop music. But yeah, I remember growing up, there were a couple, not not so much my age, but guys like you that would have an older brother. Everybody had Maiden stuff on their wall. And I remember when Power Slave came out and just thinking, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen that the cover with the pyramids and everything and but I'd never heard any of the music before so it's definitely Def Leppard was kind of in the middle they were not they didn't have that kind of following but they definitely had a rock radio following in the United States that I think everybody had a copy of Pyromania somewhere either on tape or on a record or they knew somebody so they had a they had a copy somewhere it was all over the place yeah and I think I am made and grew their audience in a different way so it sort of culminates because I used to love watching a live after death um, video mm-hmm. when I was a kid. And that's obviously like Long Beach Arena. Now, I don't know how big Long Beach Arena is in real life, but on that live after death video, it looks enormous. It looks absolutely huge. And that's a culmination of what they did is pretty much 1980, 1981, 82, 83, 84. Every year for five years, they release an album a year. And then they tore it to death. I mean, like, uh, Bruce Dickinson nearly has a nervous breakdown on the World Slavery Tour and, it, and like, nearly quits Iron Maiden at the end of it. So it was quite quite interesting that they released, essentially, 
twice as many albums as Def Leppard in that time. And it's almost like they have to do it that way. While Def Leppard do get the, the luxury as such of maybe a more commercial, accessible sound, but don't play anywhere near as much. So by the time you get to that stage, in terms of how the, the venues that they're playing and everything, there might not be a, a, massive, a massive difference. No, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I mean, obviously four and a half years between albums wasn't the plan. And we can get into all the things that kept them from making the album in 1984, 1985. But just looking at some of their peers of the day, you two, who are not exactly known to rush out albums, put out War, Unforgettable Fire, and Joshua Tree between the release of Pyromania Stereo. That's 50 million in album sales right there, right? Iron Maiden made Peace of Mind, Power Slave, Live After Death, and Somewhere in Time. That's a lot of classic, amazing work, not to mention all the touring that you were talking about. And then, you know, the Colt, who we love and have done a couple shows on, did their first three albums, Dream Time, Love, and Electric, all came out. Even Van Halen had two albums with two different lead singers, you know, between that time. So it's like, it wouldn't surprise people if Def Leppard never came back from that. And obviously there are people who were concerned that that's exactly what was going to happen. I think including the band, because I, I know the stuff that I've seen, like when they were getting ready to roll this thing out, it was make or break. Like either this thing was going to be big or they were going down in flames because they had, I, I mean, they'd been recording on and off in some way or another since about the pyromania time correct like like putting things together and stopping and starting so by the time the record actually came out they had spent so much money that they needed to they needed something big or they were going to be in trouble yeah i think they needed to forget the exact figure but it's something along the lines of they needed to sell three or four million albums just to break even (laughs) So, and, and, and in 1987, that's an insane, I mean, like, like in the kind of the heights of like maybe, maybe 91, that we kind of the height of record sales, that might not have been that big of a deal. But in 1987 to say, okay, listen, boys, we got to sell 4 million cars before we start making a dime probably wasn't going to happen if you played the odds. So, and then they started putting out singles that didn't do as well as they thought they would. I can imagine there were a lot of nights where they were like, this is we're in trouble. This this might be the end of the story here. Oh yeah, definitely. And especially, and that story as well. I mean, you, you're correct in terms of, they finished the Pyromania tour at the end of 1983. And then it's the beginning of 1984 that they moved to Dublin in Ireland for tax reasons. And that's when they start writing um, Hysteria. They move into into a house in, in like the suburbs of, of Dublin and they all, they, they all pile into this one house. Mutt Lang, the producer, actually moves in with them for those initial writing sections. And it's interesting, songs like um, Animal, they're written in those first sessions in a house in the suburbs of Dublin in, like, you know, March 1984. But then does... And it's quite interesting because you can hear the demos from, from then. And that song's pretty much still sounds... You know, all of the main parts of it are still there. It's still recognisable as a song Animal. That's written like March, April, nineteen eighty four. It doesn't come out until nineteen eighty seven. So that's it. That song is in existence for three years before it actually comes out. Yeah, and the other thing that was interesting too during that time and then into the the hysteria days was everybody in the United States knew about like Motley Crue. 
about, you know, what they would do, their partying lifestyles. You know, everybody knew about Ozzy Osbourne, but then they're like, oh, yeah, Def Leppard. Like, what? Def Leppard? No, 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 no. They, they kind of flew under the radar as far as, like, being hellacious party animals. But apparently, yeah, like, I, I saw Joe Elliott said, like, yeah, we used to stack up like the cans and the bottles and everything just to kind of see the carnage the next day. And that's just insane to think about all those guys in one house, just going crazy. That would be some, that's, that's the Joe Elliott story. I want to hear, forget everything else I want to hear about. <laughs> and then we did, and you did what? Yeah. We were up for three days and doing crazy stuff. Yeah. And the crew did shout at the devil theater of pain and girls, girls, girls between these two records, right? So they they took a lot of the, uh, well, they, they took maybe some of the fans. It's like Def Leppard's not around and they weren't touring because they didn't have a drummer. So, you know, they're kind of taking their place and, and rising up through the ranks. Hopefully you all can hear how much fun Jackson and I are having, having Neil from Def Lep Pod on. We're really enjoying our conversation, learning a lot from him, and just having fun meeting somebody and talking to someone who loves rock music the way we do. So make sure you follow Neil, Def Lep Pod, a Def Leppard podcast, at Def Lep Pod on Twitter. Now back to the show. I want to talk about Steve Clark because I just see him as a real tragic figure in the history of rock and roll. A very talented player, underrated certainly in the U.S., like Jackson said. Kind of has a Jimmy Page's quality to him in that he's not super precise. He played with heart. He played with soul. He may not have been the most precise person in the world, but it came through in his music. And I guess he was just a guy who didn't have confidence in himself. It sounds like his father was a jerk to him when he was a young man and didn't believe in what he was doing. And then he crawled into a bottle and then obviously bad things started to happen to him. I mean, what, what's your kind of feeling about, about Steve Clark? And was Hysteria his best? I think you're definitely right in terms of there's a, there's a lack of confidence there. He's, he's absolutely plagued, especially on a Hysteria tour, with each front where he, you know, he's amazing and, you know, he's probably most comfortable when he's on stage. Mm -hmm. He actually doesn't want to go on stage. We don't actually really know exactly what's going on, but there are, are, like like you said, I think there is maybe a difficult relationship with with his dad. In terms of, and also as well, the thing that you mentioned about Jimmy Page, I mean, Jimmy Page was absolutely, you know, an idol. And you can see that from, like, how low he was, it's his guitar, you know, the two-necked guitar, the scarf around the neck. He, he very much stylistically and the way he presentation stylizes himself on Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page is his massive, massive hero. Is he at his best on Hysteria? I think what's really good about Steve Clark is there's at least one iconic Steve song, Steve Clark song on every Def Leppard album. So on Through the Night, Wasted is all about Steve Clark. On High and Dry, there's an instrumental song called Twitch 625. That's all Steve Clark. Cool. You see Def Leppard when they actually play that live. You play that, they normally have like a montage of Steve Clark on the big screen in the background. On Pyromania, which I know you've discussed, Great episode, by the way. You've got Die Hard the Hunter, which is very much Steve Clark's song in terms of the riffs and everything. Great song. And then on Hysteria, oh, it's, it's brilliant. That's, pro- that's in my top five Death Leopard songs. That. And then on Hysteria, the archetypal Steve Clark song is Gods of War. And, and I think the one thing that you can sort of see with, see with Steve Clark is he brings a lot of the heaviness to Death Leopard, especially after Pete Willis left, after the high and dry album. Mm-hmm. He brings a lot of the heaviness, he brings a lot of the riffs, he brings a lot of like the cool ideas, and he brings a lot of maybe the more 
epic songs or the songs with a little bit more gravitas where musically they have a bit of gravitas. So Def Leppard are forced into, you know, writing a song that isn't just about, you know, women <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and that type of thing. And in terms of Gods of War, I would argue probably that that is the pinnacle, that is the high point of Steve Clark's contributions to, to Def Leppard in terms of the song that it manifests itself into and without Steve Clark there's no way a song like Gods of War on Hysteria album like even exists and he very much saw that in terms of I think in terms of length it's only like six minutes but mm-hmm. the rest of the band when you read the interviews you, you see I think Joe Ellie was happy that in Gods of War Steve Clark got his cashmere now not to say that it's as epic as cashmere sure. and, uh, Led Zeppelin fans will be falling over now with the idea <laughs> of me comparing Death Leopard to Led Zeppelin and, and, and that's fine but in terms of just within the context of Death Leopard, writing that epic song very much is all about Steve Clark, and I think that is his high point, and it's there on the Hysteria album. Yeah, but I think that you go back to you're talking about like uh, that being Cashmere, but I think that's the really cool part, and I think that's the cool part when you listen to this genre of music, you can you can hear or you can think of a young Steve Clark listening to and watching Jimmy Page and just saying. I want to be that guy. That's, that's, I, I want to approximate it. So it, it, the next step is to write and try and write a song like that. And I think that's really cool. But the other thing we were going to talk about real quick was that hysteria movie that we saw on VH1 and the, the one scene, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I really hope it is, is the, the scene where Steve is standing in the hallway of the recording studio and Phil walks by and he's just playing something that sounds a lot like pour some sugar on me and Phil, eh, what is that? I don't know, just something I'm messing with. Like, get over here and let's do this right now. Like, the, the fact that he could just come up with riffs like that and Gods of War isn't super intricate, but it's really, it's straight ahead and it's really cool. And it's, it's just, you're right, it's got his stamp on it. This is what I do. Unfortunately, the, the bit from the, the Death Leopard film, Chrissy's saying that's not true just simply because Pour Some Sugar On Me comes about from Joe Elliott messing around in the studio when Hysteria is actually completed and they're not going to write um, any more songs right. and he's just there like in a tea break or whatever and he's messing around and he's come up with the chorus to Pour Some Sugar On Me and then Mutt Lang hears it and said, oh, that's good, let's do something about it. And then a few days later, the rest of the band come back and they have to break the news that they think they've got another song that they need to record. Bearing in mind, they've been at it for four years. <laughs> so maybe Steve did add, add the main the main riff. Um, I'm not too sure, but I think in terms of how the, the origin story of that song is probably a little bit different. There might be a little bit of poetic license in the film to... Yeah. Um, they make their narrative work. Sure. Right. But, you know, the, the thing you were saying, too, about people being Def Leppard fans, and I, if you asked, I don't know, I'm just trying to think of, like, people that are that I've met since I was in college that are my age or, you know, maybe around there, and you would ask them, like, oh, hey, do you like Def Leppard? Eh, no, not really. You put Pour Some Sugar on me, everybody knows that. Oh, I love this. Of course you do. I remember this was on when I was in fill in the blank, you know, middle school, high school, college, whatever. Yes. Oh, that's definitely, yes. And then I I think if you put on the rest of the record, they would like the rest of the record also. Even if you, either you never heard it before or it's been a while. It's just the music, especially on Hysteria, it straddled the line between being, if you like rock, you could like it. And if you were a top 40 person in the United States, you could like it also. 
Yeah, see, Jackson, that's what I want to get into because I think Def Leppard's sound, the basis of it and the way we like it is for two things. One is the riff from Steve and the way that he and Phil play together because we love guitars. But the defining piece of Def Leppard's sound is the harmony backing vocals to me. Nobody sings like Def Leppard does. And I'm curious if you know, Neil, who's most responsible for that? I mean, besides Mutt Lang, is is Savage the best lead singer? Do they track Joe Elliott on the every backing track? Because when they do it live, every Clark didn't sing that much, but but Savage certainly did. Phil does. And, and Rick Allen had his headphones on uh, while he's playing the drums. So it, it, do they balance it? I mean, what do you know about making that Def Leppard backing vocal sound? Yeah, those backing vocals have really evolved from the first, the second to the third to the fourth album, which is hysteria. So if you listen on the first two Def Leppard albums, you've, you've got Joe Elliott who can obviously sing, and then you've got Rick Savage who can sing as well. There are other backing vocals where you get Pete Willis and Steve Clark and Rick Allen, but it's very much more in the way that us three, if we went to the pub and had a pint and the song came on really loud and we could hold half a <laughs> tune and sing, you know, a catchy chorus, it would sound okay if right. it was like a load of reverb on our voice as opposed to it's all harmonies and things. That then takes a step up for the first time on the Pyromania album when mm-hmm. Phil Collin comes in, because Phil Collin can sing. Right. And Phil Collin can sound a lot like Joe Elliott as well, which is um, it's a little bit strange. So through the Hysteria tour, you've got like those three-part harmonies. You've got Joe, you've got Phil, and you've got Rick Savage, who right. we call Sav. Mm-hmm. That actually then improves again to the state that you're in now. When in 1992, after the death of Steve Clark, Vivian Campbell, joins the band right and he can really sing as well so when you hear Def Leppard live now they, they suffer a little bit from what um, Queen did back in the day in terms of people think it's tapes and what, and what have you right. but there is actually a real ability there to actually harmonize and put all of those backing vocals together so in terms of backing vocals they're as good now and have been since 1992 as they've ever been. On the actual recordings, though, you, you do find Mutt Lang um, on there. You even get his wife at the time, um, Stevie Lang. She's on there. And I know what they do is they, they are like, you know, you, you've got double tracking. Well, I think that they don't just double track. They'll sort of loop it around. So it's like literally tens and tens. Okay. Um, you probably haven't heard it, which is fine. But on Def Leppard's 2015 album, which is like the self-titled album, mm-hmm. there's a song on that called We Belong, where in the verses, every single member of the band sings. So, like, they have their own, like, couple of lines Oh, each. wow. And it's a weird one because the diehard Def Leppard fans might hate me for saying this, but when you hear the voices individually, other than Joe Elliott, they sound a little bit strange. Ah. But to, but together, when you put it t- together, then it sounds, it sounds really good. But, yeah, I think that's an example of how the vocals have grown and been important. I mean, it culminates in the latest album with them all actually singing individually on, on one song. That's pretty neat. I'm going to I'm gonna take a listen to that because that sounds really cool. Because you're right, I'm sure it would sound. It, it, yeah, putting it all together is the classic Def Leppard sound. And, I mean, to your point, they definitely got a plus with Vivian Campbell because he is a great, I mean, he was in the Dio band. I mean, he's a great player, but it's just, he didn't really want him there because you wanted Steve Clark to go on forever in the band. Yeah. Cause we, we saw them together on that adrenalized tour, man, in the Orlando arena in the round. And it was amazing. Jackson and I were both like, Oh, this will be good. This will be a fun show. But we'd already seen Rush and Van Halen in that arena. So it was like, eh, this probably won't be as good as that. And we were blown away. Like, 
this is amazing. First of all, we know every single song. Secondly, the stage was cool as hell. And it's got to be hard work to cover all that. It's one thing to, to go out to this way to 20,000 people, but to have 20, 25,000 people everywhere you go, that's hard work, man. And they pulled it off magically. They were so good. I call all my friends and tell them, you'll never believe how good Def Leppard is live, man. They're so awesome. Yeah, definitely. That's the first tour that I, not only was that the first tour that I saw them on in, in 1992 on the Adrenalize tour, I saw them in, uh, in Birmingham in the UK. That was the very first gig I went to, was seeing them um, in, in the round. And it's interesting what you were saying earlier, Action, about, you know, in the early 80s, they might have been up there with doing the stereotypical rock and roll thing, you know, getting drunk and, and what have you. It's actually those tours playing in the round, especially the Hysteria Tour in 87 and 88, where that's when Joe Elliott goes teetotal and stops drinking. Mm-hmm. And it's simply because he realises after, like, I think on the first the first show he does, is, there's a story he tells where, like, after the fourth song, he's, like, hyperventilating and throwing up because he's been running around that much and he's just not healthy enough to do it. So on that 87, 88 tour on Hysteria, that's when you actually start getting like Joe Elliott stops drinking totally because he thinks I'm not going to be able to do this tour unless I you know, like you're burning a candle at both ends, and then over time Phil Collin stops drinking. I mean right. he goes like vegetarian and vegan and everything. And then what then happens? You've got this sort of like band of brothers, sort of these like British fellas who all like you know go down to the pub and drink, you know drink and drink and drink, and then they all slowly stop doing that. Right. Until you just left with Steve Clark, who hasn't stopped doing it, and all of a sudden he's lost his drinking buddies and mm-hmm. what have you. And then obviously he, he's sort of in a you know he's got like mental health issues or sort of you know whatever it is like anxiety and, and all of the other things going. And then all of a sudden to sort of lose that social bond maybe, and it's just to be the left one, the one left. Right. And obviously that leaves him in a slightly isolated uh, position compared to where maybe he's being like sort of mid-80s when, you know, they were all at it during Pyromania. Right. Yeah, and so then you go from being depressed to being super depressed because now you're all by your, you feel like you're all by yourself, even though I'm sure if you asked all those guys at that time, they would say, no, we, we still loved him. We still wanted to include him, but you just kind of push yourself farther and farther back. There was another, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the brand, Rat? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, of course you have because uh, they're awesome. From the eighties, but that was the same thing with the with the guitarist Robin Crosby. It was mm. the same exact thing. He just pushed himself farther and farther back because he felt like everybody was kind of abandoning him. Like we're all you know we're a band together. You know we all do everything together. We play, we live together, we go out and get drunk together. And then eh, you know I think we're gonna turn in early. We got a big day tomorrow. No, we're going out to party. So it's just that that dynamic of being left all alone. I can imagine just it just pushed him even farther down into the hole that he was in and made it difficult for everybody. I mean, I can imagine that tour was probably not easy for anyone either. It is. I don't know if you've ever heard the, the journalist and writer. Um, it's called Mick Wall. He's got his own podcast, actually, called Get You. I got a few of his books. He's He's been with everybody. Yeah. I got a Sabbath book. I got all his books, yeah. Yeah, so I made them one and everything. But mm-hmm. he, tells a, he tells a story of he was traveling with the band during the... In, in the States uh, on the Hysteria tour. And there's an, an episode where they're in, they're on like the private jet flying from one gig to another. And there's a malfunction in the plane. Something happens where all of a sudden, the plane starts plummeting out of the sky. 
Now it drops two thousand feet. It actually drops to the extent that they experience zero gravity within the cabin because <laughs> it's wow. not that fast. So it's like in space. Obviously, you know, you don't die. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's okay. And then afterwards, you know, everyone's like, "Oh bloody hell, that was God, that you know that, that was mad." Whew, I thought I was gonna die then. And he turned to um, Steve Clark, and he's not asleep or anything, but he's just um, to excuse the pun. I think he's probably quite wasted. Didn't even notice it. <laughs> Wow. Didn't even notice that it, it, it happened. So it sort of shows you, sort of like, um, how maybe even during that tour, there's just a difference in, like, sort of the perceptions of reality and what's going on and that different members of the band have got. Yeah, no, I saw <laughs> McWall. Um, sorry, Jack, I saw McWall on the VH1 Behind the Music. McWall said Steve Clark was the unhappiest rock star millionaire you know that he'd ever met in his life it's like you're good looking you're in your 20s you've got all the money you want you can have women you know you do these big gigs and yet he couldn't stand it and he would like hit his hands on the sink before the show so it's like if i break my hand i can't go on they can't make me do it i'm like good lord how many people would trade places with you in a second and yet he wanted no part of it, and I, that's why I feel like this poor guy. I, you have your heart has to go out to someone like that, you know. Yeah, and I think as shown with what happens to Rick Allen when he has his accident and he loses his arm, Def Leppard have actually only because their their band is based on sort of like friendship, like ultimately, and you know, sort of and through through the years, they've always been like really good and like a loyal band with mm-hmm. each other they're not one of these bands where you know they all hate each other they wouldn't bother doing it anymore if they didn't like each other that, that, that type of band and obviously they support they supported rick allen but with steve clark it was the same and um, it's essentially where in the period i mean he dies on january january the 8th 1991 he dies but during that period he's actually they're making adrenaline he's not in a good way he's being in rehab or whatever and they actually give him like sort of like six months garden and leave the such in terms of Listen, no pressure. Don't worry about the album. We'll crack on with that. You just go and look after yourself. Go mm-hmm. and, you know, do what you need to do. Go and, like, you know, live in your own house, sleep in your own bed. You don't, you know, we're not on tour anymore. Hang out with your girlfriend, whatever. And they actually gave him, like, just six months to just go and chill out. It's like, we, we'll crack on with the album. But obviously, they never got to the end of that six months. Yeah, sad. Yeah, there was a, I remember Joe Elliott saying, like, they, at, almost at the end, they would go and visit him and say, okay, you know, we love you. We got, you got to get, you got to get better. You got to get better. He was just like, yeah, okay, cool. Yep. Thanks. Thanks for coming by. Like he just, he was just done. Like he was just done being alive. He did not want to do it anymore. And that to, to have somebody to, to your point, I mean, they'd been together for a long time. Like I think Rick Allen was what, like 16 or 17 when he joined the band (laughs) to have that kind to see your friend. I mean, forget rock star, forget band, forget anything. Your friend just, Nope, I'm done. It's got to be heartbreaking for those guys. And then to have, maybe you think to yourself, okay, okay, he'll hit bottom and then he'll come back. He'll he'll realize that someday, and he just never did, and he just he just left the earth. That has to be just so painfully hard. And then if you want to take a step back to the to the Rick Allen arm being ripped off, and then have them say, I mean, wait, you got to have that conversation. You have to have that conversation. He can't play the drums anymore. He can't. There's no way. We've got to go on. And then him saying, I think I can do this. Mm -hmm. And them saying, I mean, okay, well, you know, we'll give you a shot. Because again, you've got this thing. This is a giant corporation now. I mean, this has to go on. And we can't have a rock drummer with one arm. That's that can't happen. But yet it did. And it's one of the greatest stories ever that he could come back from that and be successful. And yeah, I know that they tweak the kit that he plays drums, but he also has the loops that he does. But to put it all together, 
is just amazing. I mean, it's interesting because obviously I get into Def Leppard after this has happened. And also I get into them when I'm 10. And you just go, oh, the drummer's got one arm. Yeah. You, <laughs> you obviously, okay. you, don't, you don't think too much of it. From your point of view, obviously, if you so you've known a two-arm Rick Allen and you've liked Pyromania, and then and then this happens. What did you think when you heard about that? Then, in terms of how did that story come through in the states, and what did you think? Because obviously, I'm sort of after, I'm after the fact now, where it's like I know obviously he had he had two arms, and I've heard those albums now. But when I first got into them, that was like that was the sort of the story set. What about you two? What was your your sort of experience of hearing about that in the states? I don't remember really, I don't remember hearing about it too much before the record came out, but I remember seeing the videos and then saying, wait, time out. I'm missing something here. This is like a, this is a, it's a trick. It, 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 he's not really playing the drums. Obviously they had somebody else come in. This is a, it's already done. He's just kind of air drumming this. And then to learn more about it and then to learn about, because I kind of heard about the accident. I, I'm trying to remember exactly. And, and I, I didn't. Know, I just know that he was in an accident. The arm came off. I didn't know anything. The rest of that. And then, yeah. To, but to learn more, like, no, he's really doing this. It was. It was incredible to me. And just to see him out there, I'm like, that. Oh, I'm having a bad day. Uh, my car won't start. Uh, I'm not feeling that well today. I only have one arm, and I go out and kick ass all over the world. It's fantastic. And I remember when Adrenalize came out, and they did a photo shoot for, I think it was Rolling Stone, and he had a picture without his shirt on. And, I mean, there's nothing there. I mean, there's not even a shoulder. It just goes straight down. That was just, it was Bold. just very eye-opening to see that. Like, wow, he really, there's really, there's nothing there. No, I, I, I remember when it happened. And obviously, that's a big reason why they didn't make a record for four and a half years. Because they, they had to kind of get him back. And then I think Mutt was out of the picture. Jim Steinman of Meatloaf fame was going to come in and do it. And then it's like, okay, that's not right. He's not a producer. He writes songs. We can write our songs. We need a producer. So eventually, because it took so long, Mutt could come back, like, thank God. And then I think he had a car accident and broke his leg or something like that to, to make things go even longer. But see, I remember this very well. It was the summer of 87. You mentioned that Animal was the first single off the record. In July in the UK, that's right. But in America, the first single was Women. And MTV used to do this thing called World Premiere Video, like tonight. We'll have the first time ever that you've ever seen whomever. And one night in August, I remember I was getting ready. You know, it's like school's coming up. I was probably had soccer practice or football, as they call it here, practice the next day. But I was staying up late because I'm like, hey, Def Leppard, I haven't heard from them in years. And now they've got this new song coming out. Their drummer only has one arm. I'm really curious as to how this works. And then the song is Women. And I'm like, wow. They kind of suck now, man. Like, it, no offense, but I'm like, of the seven singles, women is easily the worst, in my opinion. And certainly the charts say that. It didn't even chart in the UK. It got to 80 in mainstream rock. And for your first song back in four years to be the one that barely does anything. And I think it was Cliff Bernstein at Pew Primes like, no, you need to put women out. This will get your hard rock audience back. What a mistake, you know? I mean, that that could have been not a single and they could have made Gods of War. Love and Affection was kind of almost a single. It got a lot of radio play in America. I guess they didn't release it, but we heard it on the radio all the time, right, Jackson? Yeah. And, and I honestly, going through that, I didn't know that that wasn't, a, I, it could have gone either way for me, that being a single or not. But yeah, it, it then goes back to, they released women and also had to sell 4 million copies. It's like, uh, oops. uh oh. 
Yeah. <laughs> Swing and a miss. Yeah. Yeah, and they they still talk about that today. I mean, to be honest, if you watch the Hysteria classic albums where, you know, they, they tell that story about Joe Elliott to this day not understanding why women was released as the first single in the US. It wasn't released at all in the UK. Um, so there was only there was six singles in the UK oh, okay. in America. Hmm. And I suppose it's interesting we were talking about well, what's the differences between the UK and the US. There must be some difference to the extent that very experienced managers, um, Cliff Bainstein and Peter mentioned, you know, by that time, you know, like unbelievably, unbelievably successful. So they obviously you, they know what they're doing, but they've determined that well you need to do something different in the States than you do in the UK but on that occasion they've actually they've got it wrong because women women's I mean I love the song women but it's, it's an album track quite right. clearly as opposed to uh, a single and then obviously Animal comes out in the UK and that's their first hit in the UK I don't know if it necessarily would have done the same in America I think the reason it wasn't released in America is it was considered maybe too poppy or too rocky and what they wanted to do in America was release women to sort of show that they still had their rock chops as such. Mm-hmm. you know they still have this rock element to them and maybe animal was considered too you know mid-paced to too poppy or whatever but mm-hmm. i mean animal does amazingly well it's the biggest to this day it's their third biggest hit in the uk it goes in at number six and, and that's going in at number six back in the day when you you know you got to sell a fair few singles to get in at number six so right the actual experience for the first time flipped where where they've always been successful in the us when hysteria first comes out and with the initial singles it's like it doesn't hit in the states with this release of women but for the first time in the uk it's like they're there in the top 10 and all of a sudden people are going, oh, Def Leppard, are they a new band? <laughs> no, they've been around for 10 years. That's right. That's right. And Animal did come out, you know, in September of 87, but it hit the top 20 mainstream rock and top five of, of like, you know, rock, or I'm sorry, top 20 Billboard 100 and then top five mainstream rock. So it's like, okay, we rebounded from the women thing. And then it, they mix it up a little bit now between the UK and, and, and uh, the US because uh, about the time they released Animal in the US, they released Pour Some Sugar on Me in the UK with the original first video, which may have been recorded from that house that they had in Ireland, right, Neil? It wasn't the actual, it, you're right, it is a house and it is an island. And it's the house of, it belongs to the mum of the of the drum tech um, at the time, uh, Paddy Feenan, I think his name is. Wow. So it's not the actual house. Actually, sorry, sorry, I've got that wrong. His house is the one that features in the video to be in my wine. The ah. house that features in Pour Some Sugar on Me. Again, it is in Ireland, but it's actually not a house. It's a little hotel, like a little bed and breakfast. Oh, okay. Like a, a, a guest house that was actually being demolished. And that's the same hotel or guest house that a lot of the band's family stayed in when they were, you know, in Dublin for all of those years or for quite a lot of that time writing that song. So there is a connection between that building and Def Leppard and their time in Dublin, but it, only in the sense that it's the hotel that their family um, stayed in. Now that's the kind of knowledge we like on the Ugly American Werewolf in London, Neil. That is what we are after, the minutia that the average person doesn't even understand why you would know that. We want to know that stuff. That's why you're on, and we appreciate it. Cool. I don't know how which is where I've actually known, to be honest. But so, but all right. So, pour some sugar on me's third, because the third single in America was Armageddon. It, and I got to tell you, I've always loved this song. This has always been my favorite song. I think it's my favorite song on the album. I loved 
the video. I love the girls in the video from the McNichols Arena in Denver, man. I guess that was off in the round in your face. But it gets to number three on the Billboard charts, which is a big deal. Um, and also does well on, on Rock Mainstream. And then it's like, okay, now we're doing it. Now we're, we're building, right? And that helped them get to maybe three million in overall sales by the end of 87, which is pretty good. Except A, Pyromania did double that in America, you know, on the last one. And B, like you said, they had to sell four million or more just to break even before they could actually start to make money on the record again. And of course, Hysteria came out next, but when Pour Some Sugar On Me hit America, like oh a boy. gasoline bomb went oh, off. Because oh I, I, I remember that, yeah, it was. It went from, you couldn't get away from it. It was on all the time. It was on rock radio. It was on Top 40 radio. It was on MTV all time. I'm like, all right, but let's move on here. Can we have do we have another one? Because it was it was just it was so prolific in the United States. Yeah, slutty girls love pour some sugar on me, you know. And I they, even saw an interview do. with yeah, they do. Oh yeah, and and Joe Elliott was like, I think it started in strip clubs in Florida, and then it started to work its way west. I'm like, it worked its way all over the Midwest, man. <laughs> you were talking about the video of the of when they were in the house that I've before i really like that one that i guess it was the u.s one where it starts with the black and white and they're doing they've got the rigging and it's and he just it's just joe elliott saying you know love yeah. me like a bomb bomb, me like a bomb, bomb, bomb. <laughs> and then it goes and then it goes into that i like that you know the the noodling on the guitar and then the drum boom 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 and then they go into the song i don't know if that's like an alternate version or i've never heard it other than watching the video but i just think that that's a really cool take on the song yeah it, it's a different mix to what's I mean, it's a different video to the UK version, and it's a slightly different mix. Because, so, as you said, it's got that different intro, where it's got it lovers like a bum, 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 yeah. that bit, and then there's like a weird, like sort of like scrape, weird, like scraping noise, where there's like a little sort of almost like sample at the beginning of it, and then they, it kicks in. and then he drops the drums in, and that sounds awesome. And it, and in the video as well. I mean, the video absolutely. You know the way sometimes a video can accompany a song, and sometimes the right video can really elevates the song mm -hmm. and that is your absolutely prime example of that doing that because when it kicks in as well that bit at the beginning that you see that's when they're actually in the round at the beginning when the curtain's still yeah. up and it hasn't dropped yet and then as it kicks in with the main parts of course with Sugar on me and the drums the curtains drop and then you just got this really cool like montage video and I can't remember off the top of my head the name of the director but I think he's the same in the late 80s he's doing like really good concert footage so he does the he does he's the same he's the same man who did um, the lay your hands on me video by Bon Jovi which is like a really good live video okay uh, as well that video and that song they're like perfectly matched and you go from quite a sort of twee British version which is very much sort of like a bit of a sort of you know 1970s sitcom throwback very sort of insular British type of video to this. Like in the states, in the round, there's this really cool video. You know, it's like real, like loads of fast edits, and like mm -hmm. you've got all the black and white bits behind the scenes, sort of um, edited it. And it's just that video literally makes the song sound ten times better than if you're watching it with the other videos. But I can see why it exploded that much. In, in the and but we never got that version. <laughs> oh, boo! Because we, because we, like we were talking about before, we saw him on the Adrenalize tour, and it was pretty much the same kind of like setup and vibe and when they you know they're going to drop the curtain you know it's going to happen we've seen it a million times but when they actually do it is just I mean you talk about like stand up and cheer that's fantastic just a boom 
boom, and it comes down, and they start the show. And to see it from the other ver- the other angle with them on stage getting ready, and then and then you see the crowd out. That's fantastic. Yeah, that was Russell Mulcahy who did that. He did a lot of great, not only videos but like concert films over the years. He worked with a lot of the the big artists. But I mean, then at that point they're solidified. I mean, I heard, I read that they sold three million units up until "Pour Some Sugar on Me" came out in the U.S. And then when it did, during its run on the charts, they sold four million more just during "Pour Some Sugar on Me" being on the charts, which, by the way, went to number two in America. It was it was nudged out by "Hold On to the Night" by Richard Marks. So all my friends over here in England are always asking me, "What's wrong with America? What's going on in America?" I point to that right there. So you want to know what's wrong with America? That's the problem. The people make pour some sugar on me, number one. But the corporations that kind of run stuff, like, now nah, we need a Richard Marks hit to be number one right now. None of this Def Leppard stuff. The same thing happened. <laughs> There's only one time that Def Leppard had been, um, well, two, but one really, that they got close to being number one. And that's when Let's Get Rock came out, the mm-hmm. first single on Adrenalize. And that was kept off the top of the charts in the UK by a band. I don't know if the I don't know if you've heard of them in the States called Simply Red. Oh sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there was a singer's Mick Hucknell. He's got like long red curly hair. And we've got an awful song called Fairground. It's you know, it's it, it's it's just, you know, it's a war crime of a song. It's awful. And that <laughs> kept that, that kept um, that kept Let's Get Rock off number one and I'll, I'll never forgive the British public for that. <laughs> Well, I think Simply Red's a one-hit wonder with, was it, what's the song, Gary? Is holding, it, back the, holding Back the Years. Holding Back the Years, and we don't know any, you know, it's like Gary Kemp, it's like Spando Ballet and Duran Duran, we were neck and neck all those years. I'm like, really? Because in America, you got one song and that's it, whereas Duran Duran are kind of like the Beatles of their era in America, mm-hmm. whereas, but they've got two dozen hits in the UK and Europe. It's like, Gold was this big, I never heard Gold until I moved here. You know, it's like the A&R people must have screwed over Spandau Ballet in the U.S., you know. But, but seriously, I mean, then they're on a huge roll, right? Because Animals 19 in the American charts, Armageddon, it's number three, Hysteria's top ten, then Pour Some Sugar on Me, and they're huge. And then they get to your song, Love Bites, the sixth single in America, goes all the way to number one on both co- on both sides of the Atlantic, right? That's a huge deal. Yeah, I mean... It's funny that song because I do I do think back to myself like you know singing it at the top of my lungs uh, when I'm ten years old. Wondering what my mum and dad were thinking about that. But, yeah, well, yeah, were, yeah that was a special place in my heart. That song. They were yelling at your brother. You made him listen to this. <laughs> And, then, and that's interesting too because we talk about this a lot on the show. You know, the song that if you took it out and put it on its own, you might say, eh, but the one that holds a special place in your heart, like you knew that was the first song that you listened to. So no matter what, nobody ever can bag on it. You know, you remember going to the record store, bringing it home, putting it on the on your hi-fi system and just listening to it a million times. You'll never, you'll never get over that. You'll never have anybody tell you, oh, that's not a great song. No, it's a fantastic song. You be quiet. And I've still got it to this day. I mean, it's not here with me now. It's downstairs, but I've still got the 12 inch single. Uh, to nice. nice. And it's funny because I've, I've written on it as a 10 year old, but I've written my name and I put the, I put 1988 on it. I'd never write on a record now. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but I've written my name in, like the Death Leopard lettering um, on it and everything. So <laughs> it's quite nice. But what's inter- well, it's probably not that interesting, but what's funny with that is that quite 
quickly on that. The Billy's Got a Gun live on the B side got mm-hmm. scratched, and so I was listening to that version of Billy's Got a Gun for like you know probably over a year before I actually got round to buying Pyromania. And there's, there's a scratch in the verse, and it's a scratch where it sticks, you know, as opposed to where it jumps. Oh no! And because I just like listened to it for a year in like formative years, I can't listen to Billy's Got a Gun to this day without expecting to hear that <laughs> skip. <laughs> To your point, Jackson, if you didn't like Def Leppard in 1988, 89 in America, especially in the Midwest where I grew up, you're shit out of luck because you're going to have to hear them everywhere. You're going to hear them in the parking lot. You're going to hear them on the radio. Your mom's going to know some of the songs. Your older brothers, they're going to play them at ball games. They're all over MTV. And, and because they had six top 20 pop hits, not mainstream rock, but Billboard 100, six of them, and, of course, the videos were all over MTV. You had to succumb to Def Leppard. And I remember for about six straight weeks there, because I love Armageddon. It, I, I think the harmonies are amazing in it. And come on, Steve, get it. I just think that's great. He's calling him out to give a killer solo. I think it's cool. Every night between 10.30 and 11 during the week on MTV, they played that song. I'm like, my mom's yelling at me to go to bed for school. I'm like, look. Just give me 10 minutes. They're going to play Def Leppard. I know they are. And they did. Every night for six weeks, I could set my watch by it. So you had to be into it because if you weren't, well, it was just unfortunate to be you. And it was cool when you finally got the copy of it and to listen to the rest of the record and say, okay, well, hey, well, you know, especially God's of War. To me, that was the one where it was like, why have I not heard this before? This is fantastic. And the, what I wanted to ask uh, ask you, Neil, is uh, Rocket. Is that we're fighting for the gods of war at the beginning of that? The backward part? Yeah, it's it's, it's that backwards. Okay, fed, in, fed into that song. Yes. Okay, because for me, you know, it was then I know when that came out too. Like, oh, is that a message? You know, are they trying to something satan? Like, it's just bad. They just ran the tape backwards. I mean, it's something you can't tell what it is, but it's just a cool intro to a song, also, because you knew what it was, and it wasn't like anything else either. Yeah, I mean, I I'll be honest, I only learned that that was so. The start of Rocket is the 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 chorus to Gods of War backwards. Mm-hmm. I, I only learned that from watching this. Th- area um classic album i would never have known that um otherwise and there's all other little bits as well like in, in love bites there's just like little noises where they've taken the b out of love bites and then they've they've, they've triggered it in a different song and then put an effect on it. and i think there's lots of i mean there's lots of different mixes of right. quite a few songs off hysteria that go on to on on many of the b-sides from the hysteria album and you can see how, like, from a production point of view, how malleable those songs are, where, you know, you can take a bit from there and invert and turn it around and put that bit there. It's like, like a jigsaw almost. And it's quite, I mean, while those mixes, they're, they're okay. They're not as, nowhere near as good as the originals. And if anything, those mixes sort of show you how restraint is important. Mm-hmm. Because having an eight and a half minute version of, like, Rocket, you don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to be to be frank, I agree. But it is interesting the way in which you can sort of see that those songs can be looped into each other and what. I mean, it's, it's it's quite a sort of good exercise in that, I guess. Well, and that's it's interesting bringing that point up because this is the longest record they still ever made. I'm fairly certain over 62 minutes. Yeah. And I'm looking at it. You know, God's War. Yeah, is like six and a half minutes, and it's a six and a half minute song. Whereas Rocket has this middle part with all these samples and stuff like that. I know 
It was popular at the time, and Robert Plant was doing it on his solo albums, sampling some of his Zeppelin stuff. And I, I didn't like it then, and, and I still really don't like it that much. And I'm like, it, it's, it's a four and a half, five minute song that you've stretched out just as long as God's War, kind of unnecessarily, in my opinion. And then you're right, they've got all these other mixes, for, I guess for the club, which is more popular in, in Europe than it is in America to do that for rock bands. We've talked about that on the show before. But do you have a favorite mix of any of the songs? If, if they remix or do an edit, is there one that's that stands out to you? I think the album versions of all of the songs are best. I, I prefer the album version of Rocket to, to the radio edit, mm-hmm. personally, because I think the radio edit is about four, four minutes. Uh, Rocket's a really interesting song in terms of Rocket, along with Love Bites, are two songs that they often try to do something a little bit different with when they play live. Mm -hmm. Most Def Leppard songs are played with a straight bat and they're played live how they sound on the record. But with Rockets, for example, that... It's interesting that you say about like Led Zeppelin and, and Robert Plant. So during that Adrenalized tour, especially when they played at Don Valley Stadium in Sheffield, it's like a big homecoming gig for them. It's still their biggest, U- their biggest gig in the UK uh, to this day. Wow. That whole um, elongated bit of Rocket, rather than being those samples, it's like this like, really cool like sort of um, jamming on the guitars and what have you. And then um, Joe Elliott comes in and he does all this. Uh, like that is really good, and then he puts a little bit of a whole lot of love in it, which I think is very much a nod to that middle section of whole lot of love. You know, where you know you just got that whole weird section in it. So it's quite interesting that Rockets is a song that that bit that you're not keen on in the sort of six and a half minute version on mm-hmm. Hysteria. When the, they do it live, they either cut that bit completely and play the radio edit version, or they do something different something with different. it uh, when it's live and, and sort of stretch their sort of muscles a bit. Love bites is the same. You often get like an extended guitar solo at the end, which is like normally get uh, Vivian Campbell doing that and that's really good um, as well so there are a couple of songs on that album that they often sort of flex their sort of their musical chops a little bit when they do play live that's cool and I think that's one of the things that kind of gets lost too especially in the US market is that these guys are all really good at what they do as far as playing their instruments I think they kind of get dismissed here as it's it's a pop band and especially when you listen to it there's a lot of mutlang polish on the record so they, people can't really play like that no they really can it's it's they're they're very good at what they do and I think to see them live you, it gives you a greater appreciation for that just the level of musicianship and the level of show that they can put on to entertain the audience yeah definitely <laughs> Well, let's get into uh, let's get into some superlatives here, guys. Like uh, your favorite stuff from the album. So I, I don't want to. I actually want to talk a little bit about the B sides because Jackson will tell you that I'm a sucker for B sides. I love B sides and stuff that not everybody knows. Of course, I knew tear it down pretty well because they played that at the Video Music Awards. The last appearance by Steve Clark, kind of on big TV was at the MTV VMAs in what September, maybe 32 years ago this month. And I remember seeing them. First of all, I thought their hair was super long. Like, God, they've been touring so much, they haven't even had time to keep their hair. Even Phil's was a little bit long, you know? I'm like, wow, they've, they've really been hitting it hard. And I think they did more than 200 shows on this tour. But they had for two plus years, and the top 20 singles kept coming. I'm like, wow, they've, they've really played everything off the album. They've got to get into the to the B-sides now. It's kind of a amazing, amazing run that they could do that. But Tear It Down is, 
I thought it was going to be my favorite, but I'm not so sure it is. I mean, and obviously you did a whole song, uh, old show on Riding the Sun, right? Yeah, definitely. It's interesting because you probably couldn't have a Def Leppard B-side discussion before you get to the Hysteria album because all of the three albums before Hysteria, the, the B-sides aren't great in terms of there's nothing particularly new there. I mean, the, the first album's got a song on on the B-side to Hello America called Good Morning Freedom. If you ever get a chance, there's a live version of them playing Good Morning Freedom in 1980. You can get it on Spotify or, or any streaming version. Listen to that and listen to the drums in that. And then bear in mind, Rick Allen on that is 16. So anyway, that's, that's my recommendation. Little tangent there. But for the first three albums, on the whole, the B-sides are just album tracks. That's good. So the first three albums, the B-sides just tend to be another another um, album track. On Hysteria, it's quite good because you get original tracks as B-sides, you get some live stuff, you get some um, remixes, so there's quite a variety. So Hysteria is probably the first album in which you, you get some interest in B-sides. Riding to the Sun was recorded as a B-side for Hysteria, very much for the fans, because Riding to the Sun is the very first song on the very first EP, which was independently put together by mm. the band um, in nice record, like, like late 1978. It's actually before Rick Allen joins the band. You've just got a session drummer called Frank Noon oh. um, playing on that. If you were to buy, back in the day, a, the very first Def Leppard album, sorry, EP or record, then the very first song that you hear is Riding to the Sun. By the time you get to 87, and then obviously Rick Allen isn't on that original recording of Riding to the Sun. And also Phil Collin isn't on that original recording obviously. to Riding to the Sun. So they re-recorded that to put Rick Allen on it and Phil Collin in it, in just a sort of like a nod to the fans in terms of, oh, this might be something you're interested in. You know, that very, very first song you would have heard of us if you were back in the day. We've re-recorded that now with what you consider the Def Leppard um, line-up. So that, that is quite a good, like, nostalgic tip of the hat. They've actually changed the lyrics on that as well. So the, the version on the B-side is different to the version on the BB. EP. It's strange to think <laughs> when you think of a song like Porsche Sugar on Me, that Def Leppard would be concerned that um, the lyrics have got too much sexual innuendo. There's <laughs> <laughs> no crass on the original. I think it's lots of things like grabbing onto gear sticks and stuff like that on the on, on the original Rise of the Sun that they actually changed it because Joe Elliott just couldn't contemplate putting you know, singing the lyrics that he wrote. You know, like as an 18 year old, as like a 20, a 28 year old. Gotcha. Well, it's a great song. I mean, they they do it super well. It could be my favorite. I also like I Want to Be Your Hero. I think that's a killer song, and Ring of Fire is good, and even if you get into Re Release Me, which is a cover, and, and they're having a little bit of fun with that one, but it's to have this kind of extra stuff available, I mean, it just kind of shows you, like, when Oasis did What's the Story, Morning Glory, they basically had a whole nother record of B-sides. You know, you can see that this was an incredibly productive period for them. And then it's kind of similar with Hysteria. Yes, they had many years to kind of gather all these songs together and have Mutt hammer them out. But I would put, maybe not release me, but I would put any of these four songs on the album and I can tell you some that I might sub off for. Yeah, that's an, always an interesting thing too. Is why? Why did they? Why did they include some and not include others? Because sometimes, like you know, you hear B sides and you think, well, okay, that was a and that that's a B side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not your greatest work ever. But yeah, to your point, they could have put these on the on the record and been, in my opinion, just as successful. So I wonder why they they included some and, and didn't on other ones. I think essentially what it is is that say if you prefer pyromania to hysteria, which a lot of people do. 
especially people whose first experience of Def Leppard is Pyromania, right. is that all of those B-sides sound like they could be on Pyromania, um, essentially, which is no bad thing. While a lot of the songs on Hysteria don't sound like they would be on um, Pyromania. So that's not to say that they're bad songs, but I think the way that they were judging it at the time is that, like, well, we've taken... Whether you want to consider it a step forward or a step backwards, depending on how you look at it, but we've taken a different step in a different direction. And that collection of B-sides maybe uh, sits more appropriately among what we were doing before. Interestingly, with a couple of those songs that you mentioned then, Mac, Mm -hmm. so I Want to Be Your Hero, that was originally called Love Bites. But when they they recorded Love Bites, they didn't have a name for it. They just stole a name off I Want to Be a Hero, and then they called that um, (laughs) later on. And then also, they released me um, B-side, which I don't know if you've heard the action, but essentially what it is, it's it's just like a joke song, and it's a cover of the song Release Me, and it's actually their tour manager who's singing um, on it he's like a Welsh uh, fella and when they recorded it they purposely did it <laughs> like a key too high and they joke about like at the end of it it's like you know it was like the film uh, Scanners where like, his head's almost about to blow <laughs> right. and, and what have you but for some reason when that went to uh, in Greece they preferred the Release Me version to Rocket that's the song that it was on later on I think it was on a different one in the States so <laughs> in Greece they started playing Release Me rather than Rocket and it went really high up on the charts and that's the one that they were playing and it was the joke song with the tour manager singing How that's, that, that's interesting because I mean, we, we talk about Kiss a lot on this on this show and just in general, the whole thing about how Beth, that was the same thing. That was kind of a jokey throwaway deal. And they, they flipped it over and started playing that. And that was a huge hit for them. So to your point, yeah. you really don't know what, what's going to sell and what's not. And if it, if it works, go for it. Yeah, totally. So what is your favorite B-side, Jens? I, I'm going to go with, I think I'm going to go with Ride in the Sun. Ring of Fire is close. I think it's a really cool song. I think all four of those originals are great, to be honest with you. But I, I really like I really like Tear It Down. I think that, and, and I think part of it is is the fact that that was the last one with Steve Clark, so it kind of has a bittersweet connection for me. But I, I mean, I just like it, and and yeah, I think it, Joe Elliott was talking about one time like imagining a rocket going up into into outer space and like as it goes up it jettisons parts off so you know maybe maybe at that point in time they were thinking like hysteria is the next is the next phase and we don't really i mean yeah pyromania was there but it's we're in another we're in a new deal now we're moving into another phase of the career or something and maybe that's why they they wanted to go take those songs and kind of push them to the b-sides i don't know my my favorite one would be ring of fire but it's really interesting what you said about you know when bands have like a little purple patch where like everything they write is really good so i think that album you were talking about oasis is the master plan isn't it it's got like mm-hmm. a load of uh, b-sides right. on it there's a couple of other songs that were written and recorded for the hysteria sessions that don't feature as b-sides on hysteria but they feature later on in like an odds and sods album from 1993 called retroactive retroactive now, right. the first yeah, so the first two songs on that is a Desert Song and Fractured Love. Now, if you like Steve Clark, listen to Desert Song because we were talking about earlier about Gods of War being is um, is is Led Zeppelin a nod to um, Led Zeppelin. Well. It- <laughs> listen to Desert Song and you can hear it even more keenly and so it's not just those B-sides that show what Rich Vane of sort of form Def Leppard were in in those writing years and sort of between Pyromania and Hysteria there's a few things that are completely different like Desert Song is probably one of Def Leppard's heaviest songs 
it's actually about the lyrics were written after you know, after it was originally recorded, but they had it as a piece of music. So yeah, there's a song on Fractured Love, the first two songs on Retroactive from that whole period of time as well. As is, it wasn't a big song in uh, the States, but it was in the UK, it charted really highly. It was a song that was put on the Greatest Hits album, Vault, just uh, called When Love and Hate Collide. Right. That was their last big, that was their last hit in the UK. And that was written during that period as well, but it wasn't finished off and completed until like, you know, seven years later. So it's not just those B-sides, there's, there's a load of other stuff from around then that's like really good as well. Yeah, because they were firing all cylinders. All right, well then, what's the what's the most overrated song? Let's say, what's the song that gets more than it should from the album? Not the B-sides, just the main 12 songs. What's the one you think is overrated? Jackson, you first. I'm gonna say Love Bites. I, I never, I never really liked that song because it, it's too slow for me, and it's you know, okay, you get it, Love Bites, Love Bites. You gotta have a ballad on there, man. Come on. Yeah, that's the ballad is called Hysteria. That's the that's the ballad to me, and and I'm I'm now I'm biased because I remember seeing when they did in the round where Joe Elliott plays the rhythm part and Clark and Colin play the lead. That's fantastic. So yeah, that to, that's my post. Right, how about you, Neil? I don't know if overrated is the right phrase, but I would imagine for certainly for yourselves, being from a state where you'd be absolutely you know, inundated with, with it. But pour some sugar. The familiarity of pour some sugar on me is brittle. It's interesting with any some massive, massively commercial song. You sort of got to take yourself out of that and go, well, is it actually overrated or yeah. do I just hate it because I've been listening to it for 30 years and it's been pushed down my ears? So to be honest, pour some sugar on me. I still love and still it's a great song and it's definitely going to get played at my funeral hopefully <laughs> a good few years away, yeah. Even if it's just to annoy other people. But in terms of what song am I most likely to skip on Hysteria or if I go and see them live, mm-hmm. I mean, they never would not play it, but... I wouldn't be bothered if they never played Pause and Sugar because I've seen them a million times yeah. live and I know what it goes like. So I wouldn't say it's overrated, but the song that I could I could leave alone for a bit would be Pause and Sugar on me just because, you know, it's so ubiquitous out there. Yeah, it, by 1989, I would have been totally agree with you. Like, oh my God, we don't need to hear this again. You know, like, I, I get it. It's big. You're a slutty girl out on the town. You want to dance to this. Like, I don't need to hear it again. For, for me, it, it's, it's women just because if you've got six top 20 hits and that's the song you put out first that just doesn't it's like one of these kids is not like the other that's the one so i you know and i would put any of the four i here's the thing it's aged better i think my first reaction in 1987 was like this is not the Def leopard i remember and it doesn't hold up to the other singles listening to it now it's not it's not that bad but i would probably put the four original b-sides on the record before I put that one. All right, what's the most underrated? Which which is the one you think doesn't get enough love or should have been a single? We'll let you start, Neil. <laughs> there's only, I think there's only about four or five songs left. <laughs> Don't have any options. 12 songs on the album. Only about four or five left that um, aren't. Um, to be honest, one of my underrated ones was a single, and I, I do think, I probably would say Rocket to me is, out of all of the singles, it, it's probably the one that maybe, you know, maybe didn't chart quite as high and I think across most countries, it was one of the last, in, in the UK, it was certainly the last single. It was like the last throw of the dice. And so maybe by then, the momentum had uh, burnt out a little bit. And I think for me, the reason I, sound, I, I love Rocket so much, and the reason I think that it's underrated is that I struggle 
to think of any other Def Leppard song that sounds like it, and I struggle to think of any other song that sounds like it. I think in the Def Leppard catalog, it's quite unique. And I think what they've done with it is they've managed to use the technology at the time to make something that sounds modern that still sounds good now. So, you know, like, say, for example, sometimes you can go beyond the technology that's available. So remember when, like, the, the three Star Wars prequels were, were released at the, the end of the 90s? Sure. And Lucas was adamant on using sort of CGI. I try to forget those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's, because CGI had just come about and it was in its infancy, but then he's used it way too much. And if you look at it now, it looks awful right. and because you were trying to go beyond this is the capacity of that technology. Well, you take CGI now, that'll still look good in 50 years because it, it's used it's within its capacity. Mm-hmm. I think Rocket does a really good job of, you, you know, electronic music's been going for about sort of like 10 years, uh, digitalization and what have you. And I think it does a really good job of using the technology and all the production values to its capacity, but not going over it. And so as such, I think it sounds like quite a time a song to me still to this day not to say it sounds contemporary it doesn't sound like a song that could be released today but it sort of sounds like a song that you know you couldn't pin it to a particular time and I just think it's, it's unique and different so I, w- I would say Rocket is the underrated one for me out of, out of the singles so do you want do you want the singles or do you want what, the, the what song that you don't think gets enough love okay. from whomever then, I, then I'll say Gods of War yeah. because I, I think it's fantastic and the thing that I really like I didn't realize until or I didn't know until not that long ago so Rick Savage plays with a pick he doesn't he doesn't use his fingers he he likes a pick right. and you can really hear it dig it in at the beginning of that where he does kind of the the intro bass part to that you can re- I just love that even though I, I, I would say first and foremost I love the guitar lead guitar a good bass jam a nice fat groove it's pretty cool to, but to your point, Neil, the, the Reagan stuff, that's very dated now, but then kind of not really because we're still messing with the same thing in <laughs> 2021. What? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some stuff never really goes away, but that, I, I just think that's a cool song. It's a cool riff and it doesn't get, it, it kind of gets buried with the rest of the stuff on that record. Yeah. That's really interesting that you picked that one because I never even considered that. And I think the reason I never considered it is because we're probably coming from slightly different places where I exist in this sort of all-consuming Daft Leppard world, and like sort of um, obviously I speak with other like sort of like quite like hardcore Daft Leppard fans, and within that community as such, Gods of War is would be in everyone's top five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be an underrated song, but everyone who's like you know sort of like has every Daft Leppard album, and waits for things, would have that. But yeah, I think sort of from the more like casual fan or the public, the wider public, then yeah, Gods of War would definitely be an underrated song. Yeah, and it's, it's, I, I think so. I I just think it didn't get it didn't get the love that it that it deserves in the United States as far as airplay, even on rock radio. It was way down the line. So when you got to hear that, that it was it's a treat. Yeah, I'm with you. It was my pick for most underrated, just because I mean I, I think it's an amazing song. And to hear Neil talk about like that's really the Steve Clark signature song on. I'm like, yeah, that's there's a reason why I like it so much. Yeah, absolutely. Quickly, we'll do favorite and least favorite. I'll go first. 
Favorite, as I said, is Armageddon. It love the harmonies, love the song, love the girls in the video. Least favorite is Excitable, song number 11. Something about it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I'm like, you've got these four great B-sides that you left off and threw away basically, you know, for to be B-sides. I'm like, and Excitable just doesn't do it for me. It, it kind of doesn't fit, I don't know. It, I'm sure to Def Lab hardcore fans, that's still a great song. And it, it, it kind of fits with the sound. It's just, I thought the B-sides were better. I would have traded any of them for that one. I mean, that, that song's interesting. I mean, I don't like every single Def Leppard song. I think it's, it's mad. I mean, I know like Steve Hackett, you know, maybe you like every Steve Hackett and Genesis Steve Hackett song. But I think most people, there'll be some that you're not so keen on. Yeah. Excitable, I like, but I know a lot of Def Leppard fans don't like it. And <laughs> that's an interesting song because... The idea from for that song, and to be honest, there may be a, a, a breach of uh, copyright going on without getting them into trouble, but the, they're opening that, they sort of rip the idea off. There's a song by the Jacksons and Mick Jagger, believe it or not, called State of Shock. Oh, sure. And if you have a listen, to, yeah, if you listen to that, I listen to the little riff in that, <laughs> Excitable is very, very similar. Interesting. Um, indeed. So where that song's coming from, the muse for that song or whatever, is from a very different place to where other songs come from. So I could understand why why you wouldn't like it because it's essentially coming from like a sort of disco right. <laughs> era almost. A little different. Well, then what, what's what's favorite and least favorite for you on the record then, Neil? Can I have two favorites? Sure. Okay, Love Bites for Nostalgia for just the best song, Gods of War, definitely. And then probably for the least favorite, there's a song called Don't Shoot Shotgun, mm-hmm. which is it comes straight after Gods of War, which probably doesn't isn't done any favors by the fact that it comes straight after Gods of War. Right. You, you know, you go from like the best song on the album to one of the uh, weaker tracks. Still a good song, but I would say it's probably the weakest track on the on the album for me. Jackson, R- Run Riot is also not my favorite. I could probably trade any of the B sides for Run Riot, to be honest with you. But it, it, you know, again, I think it fits. It's just not my favorite, and it's hard for me because it, it, this is it, this has such a place in my heart. This album, but one of the I don't know if "Animal" is my favorite song, but the riff at the beginning is fantastic. Just that it, it kind of it, it starts, and then you get the the intro part to it, and then it kind of slows down a little bit. But I think that Def Leppard as a whole is kind of underrated as far as the riffs they come up with. Like I know you said you're sick of pour some sugar on me. But that main riff that is just, it's its simple, but it's classic, and you know exactly what it is. So I, I really like, at least the beginning to Animal. And then I would say, yeah, to me, don't shoot shotgun because it's such a letdown from, you had Gods of War, and you're like, that was all, what is this? <laughs> so it could that's a, that's a thing where i don't know if it i don't know if i if it gets an unjust demotion in my book just because it comes after such a great song animal was the first single in, in england wasn't it they weren't they going to call the album something like animal instinct i mean wasn't at first they were going to it was kind of built around animal isn't that right neil yeah that's exactly right the album was going to be called animal instinct that name did end up getting used in 87 88 the rolling stone journalist what's his name david frick is it um, frick or fricky yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah he wrote death leopard's official biography up until that point so up until, i think it's actually it takes you just up to the release of hysteria but at the time it's written, Hysteria hasn't been a big hit. 
um, and that book was called Animal Instinct. So it, it it still got some use out of the name. Well, we're, we're starting to run out of time here, boys. So, I mean, any final thoughts on, on the album overall? Or, and, you know, what about 2022? Are they going to tour? Are we going to be able to see them here in the States? They were supposed to be on a stadium tour in last year. So with Crew and Poison, <laughs> right? Yeah, so it was with Motley Crew, Poison, and Joan Jett. And that was going to be, they've done this a lot lately. They do it in the, they've been doing it in the States probably since about 2006, and they've started doing it in the UK as well, where they, they paired themselves up with other classic rock bands and bands of a similar ilk, and it's a bit of a like a package mm-hmm. um, almost. Um, they've done it with Journey, for example. They've done it with Whitesnake um, over here. So that was going to be like one of the biggest tours um, years, like playing stadiums, stadiums which, you know, yeah. they, they routinely haven't done. So that was cancelled last year due to COVID. It was supposed to be happening now, uh, but it was being cancelled again. So currently, they're due to play that tour um, next summer in the states. And there is there's sounds that they during you know the lockdowns and and what have you that they've been writing and what have you. So they haven't announced anything yet, but they've been saying a few things which suggest that there might be a new album out. Uh, if not the end of this year, like next year, we sh- we should get a new album, which. True to form, if it does come out in 2022, we'll be seven years since their last album. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Well, I mean, and maybe we need to have you on again, because I got to tell you, I think Jackson and I are in the same boat. Obviously, when Adrenalize came out, it was a big deal, right? They're back after a while. They're back after the loss of Steve Clark. We got to see them in a stadium on a big tour with a beautiful stage and that's great but in America they kind of started to go away at least from the pop culture zeitgeist anyway and slang to me was kind of a miss it it it, it was it was like they're they trying to be different purposely and I'm like why don't you just keep being Def Leppard I know the grunge thing happened and everyone's telling you hey I have to change but it, it was a miss for me, and then I just kind of wrote them off, not realizing, hey, you still love all their old stuff, and they're going to get away from slang and do other good stuff eventually, right? So maybe you could help us, you know, figure out some of their more latter-day stuff that we would enjoy. Oh, yeah, definitely, and, and certainly after Adrenalize. It's a mixed bag, and any Def Leppard fan would tell you that. It's a mixed bag in terms of quality, and it's a mixed bag in terms of what sounds they go for. And it's like, if you're a Def Leppard fan, it's quite, it's quite interesting to sort of see what happens after 1992, which, weirdly, in our minds, we probably think is about five years ago, but right. it's like 30 years ago. <laughs> it actually, so it's interesting. We've talked today about you know what is essentially the first, in terms of recording, the first seven years of Def Leppard. And like that's obviously what everyone knows, but... Yeah, since you know, since after that, there's, there's another thirty years of story there, and um, which is good when you run a Def Leppard podcast. That's for sure. Well, it's interesting too because I saw them probably the uh, maybe it was 2019 ish on the Howard Stern show, and they were talking about different stuff, and somebody brought up Rick Allen, you know, the arm. He talked about it real quick, and and I think Stern said, "You realize you've not had that arm way longer than you had it," and it was just kind of that stop, and everybody was like. Hey, yeah, you're right. Like you talk about it, like oh, you know, what was that like five years ago? No, that was like forty years ago. Getting yeah. close to that, and to think you've lived most of your adult life without it, it just it, to your point, you, you, these things are just very fresh in your mind. But there, a lot of time has passed. Yeah, this may be the biggest comeback. I mean, I kind of tend to think of Aerosmith as the biggest comeback, just because they yeah. they were on top, they went all the way to the bottom, and then they came up and, and were bigger than they ever were. 
But that happened over a long period of time. They had several albums where they kind of went down and then came back up. Whereas Def Leppard was just gone. We didn't hear anything from them song-wise, touring-wise. We didn't know if their drummer was going to come back or not. And music changed so much in those five years. And then to come back and be just the biggest rock band, certainly in the States. I mean, look, there's, there's five bands in America that have two Diamond albums. And Diamond is 10 million sales or more, minus a Greatest Hits album. Because the Eagles have two, but one of them's their Greatest Hits album, right? And the, the list is pretty unbelievable. It's the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Van Halen with the first album, 1984, and then Def Leppard with these two 80s albums, you know? And that's why they're so still so huge in America, even if they do make some missteps in the 90s. They're still able to do arenas and amphitheaters forever, basically, in America. And I'm, I'm glad that they've taken care of themselves and taken care of each other. They've gotten recognition they deserve, like Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, whatever you think about it. They deserve to be in there. And they deserve to tour and do the big shows. Yeah, I mean, and to your point, too, the, the fact that they still look like rock stars. I mean, that's a full-time job. To, to put the dedication in to still want to do this and to have the fans show up is is a testament to kind of the lasting power of definitely pyromania and then into hysteria and probably at this point in time mostly hysteria for the for the fans it's, it, it's good because you can see that they're happier doing it now than they've ever done it before and I suppose when you're in your 20s and success is all, all you've known to an extent and you think it's going to last forever but obviously as you said in the 90s and probably through until it's only really around 2006, 2007 that these start coming on an upward trajectory again. I mean, by no means do they end up in a situation where you know they're playing in bowling alleys and that type right. of thing. But obviously, from playing like the Enorma Dome type places and everything, the popularity dives massively to play much smaller venues. You get to a point where you don't even consider Def Leppard getting in the charts and you haven't for years mm-hmm. but it, it comes back up again around 2006 in the states it starts picking up again in the uk it's a couple of years later 2008 to the point where you get to the end of 2018 where they're playing venues in the uk like the o2 and places like that mm-hmm. that they've never been able to play as many nights as those places as they've had in the whole history and it's Quite good. They do these like YouTube videos now behind the scenes, and everything. They, they're not taking it for granted. They re- they know how lucky they are that they're still doing this after forty years, and after going through like a rough patch, they've sort of come through it. And they're as popular in terms of people coming to see them, at least if not record sales as they've ever been before. And it's like you know they're just taking every show as if it's the last, and going, God, isn't this great? What a life! Oh, that's great. That's a great way to wrap, wrap it up here, Neil. Do we've had a lot of fun here, man? That was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, and, and we we'd love to do it again. Thank, Thank you so much, Neil. I told you I needed a script, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for inviting me on. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you for having us. Well, that wraps up show number 43 on Def Leppard's Hysteria with our special guest, Neil, from Def Lepp Pod. I got to tell you, me and Jackson, we had a lot of fun on this show. Neil was a great guy. He has an incredible knowledge of Def Leppard, 
And it was just a cool dude. Hopefully that came through that not only is he a good guy, but we were really enjoying ourselves. Kind of like old friends hanging out at the pub till closing time, sharing old stories. I have a feeling that it was mutual. I hope so. Uh, I hope you enjoyed yourself, Neil. And I have a feeling that we're going to cross each other's paths again here sometime in the future. So I hope that you all liked it. I hope you found some enjoyment from our deep dive on Hysteria and all the events surrounding that incredible album. It was super interesting to hear Neil's perspective as a UK Def Lep fan because they're just not as popular here as they are in the US. This record alone sold more than 20 million copies, 12 million of them in the US, a million in Canada, but only about six or maybe 700,000 here in the UK. So if you're a UK Def Lep fan, have some pride that you found a great band from your home country that's maybe underappreciated here, but you know something that most of your compatriots don't, and that's their something special, the lads from Sheffield. As usual, we want to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Did we miss the point entirely? You got to let us know. You can tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. And check out all past episodes at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. And be sure to check out Neil's show, at Def Lep Pod. He's got some great followers. He's got some great Def Leppard pictures and recordings on there that are great to share. And you can find both of our shows really anywhere you get your podcast, be it Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Podbean anywhere you get your shows. Now next week we've got another very special show as live music has returned to Greater London and I had the privilege of seeing Mr. Steve Hackett live at the London Palladium last night as I'm recording this. It was on Monday, September the 20th. Second time I've seen Steve, first time at the Palladium and it was a great night out, a really incredible performance. So next week Jackson is going to actually interview me and we're going to talk about not only the performance but the set list and all the members of the band and the Palladium, just what it's like to be back out seeing live music again, which is something I've missed dearly, and I don't think that I'm the only one out there. Trying to get through this COVID thing together, guys, and hopefully wherever you are, it's getting better and not worse, and you're going to have the opportunity to see the music that you love live here soon. So for us, to all you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. This year is your year, even if you also said that in 2022. And however you want to make a splash, Mother Nature can help you every step of the way with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Wool Runner Mizzles are shoes made from premium, supernatural, weather-repellent materials. So you can jump into this year with both feet, rain or shine. The high-top uppers are made from temperature-regulating, moisture-wicking merino wool treated with durable puddle guard technology to keep you dry and comfy. And you can take confident strides with supernatural rubber treads that grip for all-conditioned traction and sugarcane-based sweet foam midsoles that put a little bounce in each step. Allbirds is constantly innovating to increase the performance and longevity of their earth-friendly materials. So even on your toughest outings, you'll wear out before your shoes do. This year, make a splash without worrying about getting your feet wet with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? 
Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.